You're listening to Art of the Float. Hello, Float community. Today we have a really special episode. We've got Justin Feinstein's Friday Talk. We're sharing that. It's about the Float Research Collective that he's creating, and it's about the three different types of potential research the Float community is going to participate in. So I think it's a really important episode as well. This is a live recording. So this is me aiming a microphone around the room, so the audio's a little rough. Uh, with that being said, again, I think it's a really important episode, so I hope you do give it a listen and consider what type of research you think that the Float community should be participating in, because ideally it's the kind of research you're going to be participating in. So do give this a good listen. Next week, we're going to listen to the QA section of it. And before we get started, I just want to give a few thanks to our supporters. Uh, first is FEMO. This is our financial modeler presented by Art of the Float. If you're starting your float center, sign up now. We are just doing early access at the moment to sign up. Go to our website, click on that, enter your information, and you can learn about your float center before you ever create it. So basically, you can learn all of your numbers, all of your assumptions. You can play with it, change your numbers. This isn't just a simple spreadsheet. This is great for learning and understanding your numbers, including uh, you know, break-even points, utilities. That's things like seasonality in there as well. So some really cool stuff to understand your numbers. If you're interested in reaching out to a bank for a loan, great way to not only understand your numbers yourself, but be able to talk to them so you understand your numbers and they understand what you're talking about, as well as uh, just giving them the basic information that they're going to want to see in spreadsheet format. I also want to thank Helm for supporting us. Helm is the software built from the ground up for the float industry. It's been growing over the years. It used to just be for float tanks. Now it can take care of float tanks, massage, acupuncture, uh, all the other modalities that you might do in addition to uh, just your float center. Helm can also take care of, in addition to all the other incredible things it does, uh, which one thing you're not going to find with the other guys is your your metrics for your like uh, water sanitation, how often you're adding hydrogen peroxide, what your hydrogen peroxide levels are, what your uh, specific gravity is. All these things are also tracked in there, as well as project management communication in there. There's a, a log book that is 24-7 uh, conversation ongoing at your float center. Again, floathelm.com is where you want to go to schedule your free tour. And without further ado, here is Justin Feinstein. So a cu couple uh, just preliminary things before we get going in earnest. Uh, thanks everyone for coming out today to start the conference. Looking forward to this. Um, I'm going to have uh, my two RAs, uh, uh, Kaylee Elliott and Laura Garrison, raise their hand. They're wearing a Float Research Collective shirt. And they're going to be going around today collecting email addresses. So if you guys want a copy of this PowerPoint so you don't have to worry about taking notes, for example, sign up for the email and we'll email you a copy. But it will also give you updates as the collective progresses. And so this is really a work in progress. Um, in fact, the, the whole notion of a Float Research Collective only came up earlier this year at the RISE Float Conference. Who, who was at the RISE Conference this year? All right, cool. So the conversation continues. We, we started it there, we're continuing it now. And then given the fact that this is you know, the finale of the Portland Float Conference as we know it, we may want to continue this conversation and arise again next year, just so we have regular meetings and keep progressing. But just keep that in mind. You know, what we're going to accomplish today is the beginning, it's not the end, okay? 
Now, a couple other uh, uh, pieces of information. In a little bit, I think, if they're not lost or wandering off somewhere, Tom Fine and John Turner are going to walk into the room. They are the original float researchers from the 1970s. And when they walk in, let's all give them a round of applause, if they make it. If they don't make it, then <laughs> we'll figure out something else. And then the final uh, uh, piece of news is Sandra Calm. Uh, where's Sandra? So for those who don't know, Sandra decided to celebrate her birthday here with the Research Collective. Sandra and Dylan, they, they own the float shop here in Portland, and, and actually Sandra came out to my laboratory in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and stayed there for a whole week uh, painting a mural that all of our patients look at before and after every single float. It's really kind of the central feature of our clinic, so I'm really appreciative of Sandra. So, um, up here in the front, uh, you guys know who you are, but we have some real float researchers of the present, and then we have some float researchers of the future, people who are either going through school and getting their dissertation in float research, or people who are just getting going in graduate school and thinking about floating as a potential uh, avenue for research. And I can't emphasize enough, you guys, one of the, the main reasons why I'm pushing this collective is we need more research. When I first got into this, you know, five, six years ago, it was the loneliest field I've ever experienced, <laughs> other than Tom Fine and John Terra, who, you know, still kind of kicking. But we, we, need, we need to revitalize float research, and, and I'm hoping this collective could sort of be the beginning of, of that revitalization process. So let's talk about the, the four primary goals of the research collective. I think one of the things that we're going to be doing today is this could become an educational resource for the whole float industry. It could educate you guys on what research actually means, how you conduct research, and it could also help educate you on what not to do and how not to conduct research. And I think that's part of what today's session is going to be about. It's, it's going to be somewhat educational. So I apologize if some of these things are not exciting. But there's a lot of nuances to research that are not exciting, and it just comes with the game. As I mentioned earlier, we do need more research. This is so critical, and if there's ways we could help facilitate that with this collective, help people get going on their first IRB protocol, which we'll talk about, or just find ways to give them ideas on how to actually start a project, that's what the collective is all about. It could be a sounding board for future researchers to bounce project ideas off of, make sure they're practicing the best science possible, and ultimately that's gonna benefit all of us. If you're doing good science and good research, it's gonna have ripple effects, and we'll talk about that. And this is along the same lines. You know, I, it's hard to say, floating since I started about five, six years ago has had this sort of exponential growth, right? You're seeing more and more flow centers every year. And it's hard to know when that's going to stop. Maybe it's already starting to, to plateau a little bit. But I could tell you one area that floating has not penetrated is the medical community. 
it's, it's a major issue because there's no research. Now, doctors, any clinicians, any medical professionals are not going to prescribe something, are not going to recommend something that doesn't have empirical evidence to back it up. And there hasn't been a lot of float research. There's been some, and we'll talk about that, but there hasn't been a lot. And really, you know, the goal of the collective, the way we're going to know it's succeeding, is if we could generate a whole lot more good science. And really, science is about papers. It's about papers published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, in medical journals. It's about people replicating findings to show that it's not just one lab in Tulsa, Oklahoma doing this, but there's other people who could replicate these same findings. So these are the tenets of, of research, and if floating is, is really going to penetrate the medical community, it will not happen until we accomplish number three. And I can't do this by myself. In fact, one of the things you guys may not realize is I could put together a multi-million dollar clinical trial at LIGO. My, my laboratory, right? And we could get stunning results. We could get everybody better. It still will not penetrate into the medical field because in order for a treatment to become empirically supported, it has to replicate in one laboratory outside of the original discovery. So keep that in mind, you know, just single trials here and there are not going to work. We need to do many trials and we need to replicate the findings independently. And that's really how this is going to penetrate into the medical community. And I think it will penetrate. I think we have all the right ingredients, you guys. The technology is, is, is extremely well calibrated. I think it could be replicated off-site at recreational centers. But until we do those studies, we're never going to know for sure. And then, this is kind of, you know, in some ways the moonshot. By the way, do you guys know what this, this this moon is behind the background? This is, no? So this is a, uh, it's a dwarf planet between Mars and Jupiter called Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. And the craziest part is as you fly by Ceres, it's very striking because you can kind of see it here. See the spot? That's magnesium sulfate. It's a, giant, it's a giant pool of magnesium sulfate just hanging out on that planet. Dwarf planet. Temperature is a little low. Yeah, not as well calibrated as you'd like it. So in terms of like, you know, our, our moonshot, think about this. You know, I have two float tanks in the middle of Tulsa, Oklahoma. On a good day, you know, Laura and Kaylee, we can maybe get four patients in because we do a lot of physiological tests and blood measurements, so it takes a while. So that's not a lot of output, even if we have a good day, right? But you guys have giant float centers. Some of you guys have more than four, five, six tanks. You could get hundreds of people in every week, right? If we combine efforts and we actually start collecting data at recreational facilities, instead of having a study of you know 50 to 100 people, we could have studies with you know, 5,000 to 10,000 people. And the findings, of course, are a lot stronger the more people you could actually show them. You have a much better chance of, of seeing a true effect when your sample size is that large. So keep that in mind. This is a moonshot. It's going to take some time to set up an infrastructure for how to collect data in your sensors, because it's not trivial. There's a lot of information, 
a lot of different ways of going about doing it. And so part of what today is, is just a conversation about this point number four. How would we actually implement something like that? And there is no answers that are going to come out of today, but there's going to be some food for thought. And then what I'm hoping is at the end of my presentation, we could have like a good, you know, 20, 30 minute discussion from your perspective as to how we could actually implement this and things we should be considering from, from your perspective. So one of the neat parts about this is five, 10 years ago, there really wasn't an integrated cloud. But now it's ubiquitous. Cloud-based technology is everywhere. There's really nice database management programs like REDCap that are free to download. And you can organize data across the whole country and eventually the whole world using these databases. And all you need, you guys, is a tablet. I mean, that's about as low budget of a research study as you could get, but it's true. If you just administer self-report questionnaires on a tablet that's connected to the cloud through a database, everybody who's filling that out, no matter where you are in the country, is gonna get integrated into that same database, and then we could mine it. We could mine the data at a national and international level. So, before we go any further, I need to introduce to you guys the founders of Float Research, Tom Fine and in 1983. It was called IRIS, the, the International Rest Investigative. Yep, yeah, there it is. There it is. This is from 1990. They had, uh, I think, six meetings over the course of about two decades. The last one was 97. And the first uh, IRIS meeting in 1983 uh, the keynote speakers were John Lilly and Jay Shirley. So, in some way, shape, or form, we have to find a way to, to bring back Iris. So, the next part of this is, you know, something that I don't think is going to be very hard once we set up the database infrastructure. That's a hard aspect. But the idea is that you can all collect data the same way at your own centers quite easily in a way that would be comparable across centers. And one of the things that I like about this is there's going to be important questions of interest that come up over the course of the fluid industry's development. There's been some issues that we're trying to get uh, a sanitation and disinfection more standardized in the fluid industry. And so there's things that we could actually do with this database system that could actually answer questions that aren't just research questions, but more industry type questions. And then this is the part that I think is critical. Who here knows about the fibromyalgia flow project? So it's a great study. They had over 150 patients from around the world who had fibromyalgia. They floated 10 times. We got pre and post measures of pain 
the effects were fantastic. Graham showed me the effects. Totally publishable. But guess what? That study did not have an IRB and did not have an informed consent. <laughs> so in some ways, it was unethical research, and we'll talk about that, because you need an IRB and you need an informed consent to be conducting ethical science, at a bare minimum. But beyond that, because it wasn't done the proper way, there's not a single peer-reviewed journal that will legitimately take that data. And so that finding that fibromyalgia could actually benefit from floating, which has never been published on before, will continue to remain unpublished even though we did a multi-country study. And that's why this collective is so important. We should never allow that to happen again. If we're gonna do research, let's do it the proper way and get it published, because otherwise it's just falling on deaf ears, quite literally. Now, another thing, and, and this is really part of the education, is papers will start coming out as more and more researchers come into the field. So for example, this past year, our lab had two papers come out. I don't know if you guys knew that. And these are in open access journals, and you can obviously access them on the journal's website. But one of the things that struck me when I first started float research five or six years ago is it's really hard to find a repository of past float research, dating back to the beginning. And some of the journals that things were published in in the early days are no longer around. Um, some of them are really hard to find. So I spent a lot of time going back and forth with my library to find these articles. And we created a repository. And in fact, um, Kaylee and, and Laura, who are going to be going around the room uh, um, collecting signatures, will also give you a card with clinicalflotation.com. And on this website, you guys, is a repository of every peer-reviewed float paper that I could find that deals with anything clinically related. So this is really focused on the medical side of things, as we alluded to earlier. And there's dozens of papers out there dating back to you know, the 1960s. Let me see if I could um, pull one up for you. I'll, I'll show you guys an example of this work. The other neat part about um, this website is we're going to kind of use it as a repository for other things as well like presentations that uh, scientists give. Um, let's see, here we go. So on clinicalflotation.com, if you go to the publication section, it will literally have all the publications starting with the most recent ones. You could see where it was published. You could actually download the PDF of it and read the study. And it goes all the way back. Um, whoops. You can see, um, here's the John Turner, Tom Fine paper, Biofeedback and Self-Regulation, 1989. Some more uh, Tom Fine, John Turner papers back here. And it keeps going back, in fact, all the way to the first uh, clinical float paper, which was 1960, Jay Shirley. Do you have any um, like filter for those, or are you doing any, almost anything that you can find that Anything in a peer-reviewed journal. Now, there's a lot of float papers, you guys, that were published in chapters that were in, in books that were not necessarily peer-reviewed. I haven't put those up yet. We could eventually do that. But for now, these are just peer-reviewed journals. 
And then, you know, the other nice thing about this website is if you're in uh, a situation where you have, say, a, a researcher come to your flow center who works at the local university, or a doctor that really is interested, maybe wants to really think about doing research or even getting their patients to come do it, and they ask you a question. Hey, what do we know about the science behind flow? Instead of you having to sit there and say, well, I think we know this or that, just send them to the website, right? All the PDFs are here. They can read it for themselves. We don't make any grandiose claims. We just say, you know, these are the papers that have come out. The truth is, you know, when you use the word, what is floating indicated for, it, it's hard to say because there hasn't been nearly enough research to know definitively with the proper randomized controlled trials what it is. So we only have bits and pieces of evidence, and it's all here. So it's a great resource. I hope you guys use it. And then the idea is we'll keep adding to it over time. We'll put in news updates. We'll put in uh, uh, presentations like from this year's float conference. So it's all in one website. And it's really geared, like I said, towards the medical side of flotation. All right. So any questions so far about Float Research Collective and the website. Okay. So what I'd like to do now is talk to you about one of the reasons why it's important we do float research. Who here thinks floating is risk-free? Who here thinks floating is relatively safe? Good. Boy, I don't need to educate you guys at all. <laughs> so it's true. I've been shocked. You know, I, I spent the past two years working with really fragile patients with severe anxiety, severe depression, post-traumatic stress. And I was positive we were going to get some adverse events. And so far, you know, cross our fingers, we haven't. And it's always on my mind, and I'm always worried about it, which is one of the reasons why we have a real-time intercom system. And, we monitor people's vital signs. And we really try to look for safety issues that may emerge. But so far, we haven't seen much. So it is relatively safe, as far as I can tell. But it doesn't mean it's risk-free, right? So we're not going to go through all this, but I want you guys who are genuinely interested in research, and then, of course, the future researchers, you should know all these documents. They're very, very boring documents, which is why I put the link up and didn't actually put the document. But things like the Belmont Report and 45 CFR 46, these are the laws. These were laws that America created to stop unethical science. These are reverberations from Nazi Germany where people were getting experimented on with no informed consent. And it was a way to sort of advance research so it is always done in an ethical fashion. And that's so important because if you guys are thinking of doing research at your center and you don't know about these things, you're doing a disservice to scientists who do. And I think that's a key part to realize is research is not easy. There are nuances and details and you have to learn it. And if there's one thing I hope you can take away from this is that if you don't know research, you should collaborate with somebody who does. Collaborate with a good scientist, with somebody who's a medical provider if you're trying to study patients because you really need that expertise. This is not stuff that you can necessarily learn yourself. But it's there as a resource, so you can kind of take a look. The other thing is, 
the whole clinical trial world has been upended. Basically what happened is the National Institute of Health has been pouring billions of dollars into biomedical research, oftentimes clinical trials, and a lot of these trials were not replicated. And so the NIH sort of did a reboot about five years ago and now it's being fully implemented, where they changed the definition of a clinical trial and have caused a lot of sort of red tape in order to even perform a clinical trial. And as you could see, it's about as broad of a definition as a research study could be. One or more human subjects prospectively assigned to one or more interventions to evaluate the effect of those interventions on health-related biomedical or behavioral outcomes. And basically, they define an intervention as pretty much doing anything to anybody. <laughs> and I can tell you there's a lot of basic scientists who are up in arms about this because basic science studies where you're just trying to learn something very, very simple, not even trying to create a health intervention, but you're manipulating something like their working memory. And now that's a clinical trial. So this is another aspect which you have to keep in mind. Everything we do with floating is probably going to be deemed in some way, shape, or form a clinical trial, even if it's asking much more basic questions. And then, let me tell you a little bit about informed consent and IRBs, because this is really the, the key centerpiece of a research study. So every single subject, by virtue of the laws of this nation, and actually the laws of the world, like for example, Europe has uh, the Helsinki Code of Research, you need to have an informed consent. And all that simply means is you need to inform the subject of what they're signing up to participate in. They can't do science without knowing what the risks are, what the potential benefits are, what the compensation is if they're going to commit to it, how they get out of the study if they don't want to be in it anymore. All these things need to be told explicitly to the person before they start, and then they have to sign the document, and it's actually a legal document. And so this is an example of my informed consent. It's just page one of 12. I'm not gonna take you through any of the other pages. I'm, I'd be happy to, to share some of these documents with you guys if you're thinking of applying for an IRB, and we could talk more in detail if any of you are. But I think these first four points are perhaps the most important part of any research study. Point number one, being in a study is totally voluntary. It's your choice. Point number two, you could stop at any time. That's so important, right? If you, if you don't want to do this anymore, you could stop immediately. There's no repercussions. Uh, no one could promise the study will help you. This is a major, major issue, I think, for float centers trying to conduct research. If you, if you have a patient that comes in and says, oh, I want to do this study, and you start saying, oh, you're going to feel so much better after this, you just made a promise that you can't actually keep because there's no empirical evidence that could actually justify what you just said. And so part of what we tell people before they even participate in our study is we don't know. Part of the reason we're doing the studies we want to we want to learn, right? But we can't make any promises, and that's so important as float center owners if you're going to do research, is you have to maintain equipoise. Does anyone know what that means? It's one of the hardest parts of clinical trial research, equipoise. But it basically means you cannot take sides. Even if you think floating is going to provide a miracle cure, when you speak to the, the future research subject, 
you just say, you know, we're doing a research study, we want to see if this works, but we can't make any promises that it will. How do you, how do you see that working up against us as businesses that have marketing this gene? So, if you're a patient interested in a trial or running a commercial website, obviously you're going to be looking at that separate website, which is marketing this yeah, that could be tricky, and I, I, I've, I've always been, um, you know, surprised by some of the things people put on their marketing websites that have zero empirical support. So, for example, if any of you say that magnesium is absorbed while floating, I would take that down immediately because we don't have any evidence that magnesium is getting into the body. And in fact, I have some evidence to suggest that it may not, at least with the markers that we're looking at. So I think it's too early to tell. And there's a lot of things that are too early to tell. So just, yeah, it's a good point. We'll have to tread cautiously. And then the final point is don't join the study until you can answer all the questions. So part of the issue with informed consent is it should be administered by a researcher. And if you're not a researcher, at the very minimum, you need to get ethical research training, which is called city certification. So one of the things that's going to have to happen is if we're getting IRBs at float, recreational float centers, is somebody on staff is going to have to be city certified to give these informed consents. And this is part of what they teach you is equipoise, how not to make any promises, how to make sure that you're accurately uh, going through the whole study. The other piece of this is the IRB itself, the Institutional Review Board. They're at every major university. They have their own IRB. There's also sort of centralized IRBs that take on institutes and businesses and pharmaceutical companies. So for example, my, uh, uh, my institute, Laureate Institute, goes through an IRB called WERB, or Western IRB, and they just take on cases from around the country and review the protocol. And basically, all the IRB's doing is it's looking at your informed consent, and it's looking at your research protocol. And it's saying a few things. One is, is it ethical to do this research, period? Are you causing more harm than good, potentially? Is there risks that are not actually worthwhile or advantageous for a human subject to be committing to here? And if there are, then they might actually reject the study. They'll say, no, you're not allowed to do this study. The other thing is IRBs are separate from the lab itself. And they could shut your laboratory down if you're not doing this correctly. So for example, if you said you studied 20 people in your project, and the IRB audits you and says, all right, let me see 20 informed consent forms with signatures of those 20 people, and you have 19, that's unethical research because somebody doesn't have an informed consent. So you really have to dot your I's and cross your T's with the IRB because they will shut you down. And I've seen laboratories get shut down who are not doing this properly. The other thing about the IRBs is, if you're not going through your university, they're quite expensive, too. It's not easy to, to always do it. Several thousand dollars per protocol, basically. So I called my IRB, Western IRB, after the RISE float conference, and I asked them, I said, you know, let's just brainstorm. How could I go about collecting data at all these recreational facilities in a way that would be ethical and would possibly lead to the ability to publish the research. And so they gave me a couple different options and I just want to take you guys through these options. The first 
uh, option is, is the Flow Center engaged in research? And if the answer is yes, if you're doing a clinical trial, for example, you would need to individually certify each individual float center to conduct research. That's not easy, because basically the IRB needs to know about what your float center is, the medical and safety precautions you might have in place at your center or not, and it's costly, as I said, several thousand dollars for each center. You're gonna have to train people on how to get city certified, how to conduct this research. Every year you have to renew the IRB, and you also have to report on all of your research activities. If there's been any adverse events, you have to notify them within 24 to 48 hours. And it obviously has some additional costs in terms of time and money. So option one is advantageous in the sense that if you do this right, you could publish this research potentially in a good journal. But it's disadvantageous in the sense that if you think of how many flow centers there are in this country, that's a big hurdle to jump over for each individual center. Option two is a little easier, but it also has some limitations. You could create an online study that then gets advertised at flow centers that want to participate. It could be you know, a flyer on the wall or just something that people could pick up. The float center owners and people who work at the shop can't coerce the person to participate. They can't say, oh, you really need to sign up for this. You could basically just leave the flyers on the wall or around the, the float center and someone could pick it up and then log into a website and basically um, you would obtain all of the informed consents online through e-consent. So basically they would have to read through it, they'd have to sign their name, and then they would go through and fill out the questionnaires. And it would go to the laboratory or the collective, if it were the collective, that was doing this option. So the advantages of this is you would only need one IRB, the central IRB. You don't have to get it through each flow center. The disadvantages of this, though, of course, is you would be limited in terms of who would actually sign up for this, because basically it's the sort of person that would look at a flyer and say, oh, I'll go do this research. And so you're gonna have a very self-selected sample. And then on top of it, um, the questions that you could probably garner from this are going to be somewhat limited to whatever that protocol is. It's not gonna be as expansive as we necessarily would want it. But it doesn't mean that it won't work. I think it's an interesting option. So can you, uh, other ways you can expose people to that that aren't promotional, like can you post it on a Facebook page, can you have it on the center's website? If it gets IRB approved. So the IRB would actually have to approve any advertisement that you're going to do. Channel by channel. Channel by channel, and if IRB approves it, then you could do it. Uh, you, can, you can use uh, you can have the survey on Survey Gizmo, for example, but of course you're going to have to have approval, and you can also solicit individuals through Facebook to go to Survey Gizmo and take the uh, take the survey. But one good approach is to uh, is to have an, an anonymous type of survey participation where you don't know who the uh, participants are, and uh, in that way there is uh, some kind of confidentiality issue. 
And we'll talk a little bit about the identified data in a second. I just wanted to point out, um, I'm using option two for my current study, um, and I have, I got approval to, um, to solicit through Facebook, through social media, so um, for my institution, um, option two has been working out so far. That's great. So in a little bit, uh, Amarinder's going to tell you guys, um, I have a slide about this, about how he got his IRB approval for his dissertation project, so we'll learn about that, but option two um, has been viable for Option three is an interesting option um, in terms of doing things a little bit more rapidly. There is a way to collect data without an informed consent and with an, an IRB. It's not ideal. There's a lot of limitations to this, but basically several things have to happen. One is most likely this would only work with what are called surveys not clinical measures, not symptom measures. It actually is literally called surveys, but it's just a questionnaire. And you can't provide any incentive. You can't say, you know, oh, we're going to give you $20 off your floats if you do this survey, or we're going to let you float for free if you do this survey. You can't do that. It's just literally surveys done with a convenient sample. These are people who are going to come to your float center anyways and float, right? And you want to collect some information before and after their float and learn from them. You could do that, but it needs to follow this key requirement. All data needs to be de-identified. That's complex. It sounds simple, but it's complex. So in other words, if you ask for the person's name, are you collecting de-identified data? Yeah. If you ask for their address, are you collecting de-identified data? If you're asking for medical diagnoses, are you collecting de-identified data? It depends. If you're in a small town and you have a rare disorder, and now you've selected that disorder, you may be identified by that. The IRB thinks about those things. They really care about medical information especially. If you're collecting any medical-related information, they want it to be completely de-identified, which means it doesn't even have any link to that person, no name, no subject ID. Think about that, you don't have a subject ID, how are you gonna do a longitudinal float study? If I wanna do a 10 float clinical trial, right? And someone comes back 10 times but they don't have a subject ID, I can't link those floats. And so one of the problems with option three is you're never going to be able to do a longitudinal study because everything's de-identified from the get-go. And the only way this is going to work is if you get an exemption letter from the IRB itself. And they would actually have to say that this study meets the definition of exempt research. So that's not easy, but the neat part about this option is if it works, and we could set up an infrastructure really quickly, we could potentially have hundreds of float centers on a database system that then would collect these data. And it would just require, essentially, training on how to actually implement the protocol. No IRB, no informed consent. It's just using the data. Just a context, and that basically the fibromyalgia study was just put out the IRB. No, the fibromyalgia study collected identifiable data. <laughs> well, another went through the actual, like, you know, having anonymized IDs, 
No, you don't give IDs and de-identify data. Because yeah. <laughs> someone that has those IDs linked to a name somewhere, right? That's identifiable. There's other studies happening right now in the float industry, you guys, that we need to, as a collective here, really put our foot down because they're doing research that has not been IRB approved, that is a clinical trial, and has basically uh, been moving forward without any oversight. I know of a PTSD study that some of you guys may be aware of. They had a session earlier today. That does not have an IRB. They're collecting identifiable information. They're working with a very fragile patient population with one of the highest suicide rates in the country. What if one of those patients commits suicide during this study that's being run? There's no medical oversight. The family could very, very easily say, what the hell was happening to my son when he killed himself? And look into it and realize he was doing a study with no IRB approval, no informed consent, and they're going to blame it on the floating, even if it wasn't the floating. This is why you guys need to take this seriously, is if you do research that doesn't have IRB approval, you put yourself and the whole industry at tremendous risk for an adverse effect. So do you recommend going through a university for your IRB? Because when I got my IRB approval, it was pretty easy because they were they looked at the, what was out in the industry on flow takes, and they're like, okay, this seems safe, um, and what you're collecting isn't too invasive. Um, so I, I, it wasn't a big challenge. But you, and you're saying if you go outside of the, the university system, you have to pay a bunch of money and be slower, possibly? Because my IRB took literally 15 minutes for me. It, it all depends on who your IRB is, yeah. but the, the, the truth is, your IRB is not going to let you do studies at other places because they want it done on campus where they have oversight. Well, I, I'm working with FloatOn, mm -hmm. so there's, a, there's been a conversation okay. to take place. But so FloatOn is working with, my, with the university. Okay. Yeah. So we should talk about that in, the, in one of the future slides because okay. I think that's an interesting notion. Okay. I think one important thing is that we keep talking about IRBs and how hard they are. It's going to be highly dependent on what is the study that you're doing, right? Yeah. So if you just so what Justin is giving you is really like the easiest baseline, which is they're just collecting you know some survey data, and even that you already have all these loopholes, which have good reasons to be in place, right? But as soon as you start doing any kind of intervention, as soon as you start collecting, so we collect brain data, neural data, right? So there's extra loops to go to, so sort of. Secondly, answer your question. I think it's always a great idea to connect with a university because you will want to have the expertise on research that you're not going to get by reading some of the sites, right? So you want to be paired with those people who know what they're doing. Uh, so that, that's crucial. And then how hard or not an IRB is going to be is going to be highly dependent. And what, what are you asking to do, right? And the, the, the more fragile the patient population, the more stringent the IRB becomes. For healthy people, giving them a questionnaire, they tend not to care very much. But for any vulnerable populations, they take it very seriously. So this is just an example of the sort of flow chart the IRB would use to make an option three determination. But essentially, um, it really will only allow surveys. And it can't be with children. Um, and essentially, um, you can't do anything outside of surveys. As soon as you step outside of a survey, they're going to nail you on it and say, no, you need an IRB and you need informed consent. So these are just de-identified surveys that allow you to 
to do that sort of research. Now, one of the limitations to an option three, of course, is you don't have informed consent. And so we're now we're back to the fibromyalgia flow study, right? But what you will have that's different is you're going to have an exemption limit that the IRB said this does not need informed consent. And so let's say you've got a data set of 10,000 floaters through an option three. You may be able to publish that study in certain journals. Now, all the good journals, I should mention to you, will mostly require informed consent, IRB-approved research, period. They will not look at any papers that have it. But there may be some journals out there that would actually accept an option three study, assuming you had an, an exempt letter from the IRB. So that is a limitation of an option three. So let's spend just a little bit of time. We're almost done with the presentation. But I want to talk about the different models that have actually been put out in practice. So the traditional model really falls into three different types of categories. One is you could have a clinical research flow center where you create it purely for the purpose of clinical research. You go the traditional route, you get full IRB approval, full informed consent. So that's what our institute's doing. There's other ways. So I'm going to have Andy uh, talk to you guys in a second. But Andy did something really neat. He, he came to me really early upon opening his flow center, he says, you know, I really want to do some research in my center. I'm going to buy some of the best pools for clinical float research out there. How could I do this? And I said, well, you need to connect with your university. This is what Ricardo was just talking about. And so he contacted researchers at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, University of Wisconsin-Madison. He had researchers come float for free, sometimes many times just to see if this would be interesting to them. And then he actually found a true scientist, Dr. Terry Darun Cassini, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, who studies post-traumatic stress, who runs a PTSD clinic at the university, and is actually uh, going to do a, a PTSD flow study. So you want to tell us a little bit sure. about that? Uh, yeah, so like Justin said, this started couple years ago, I guess, I went down to Tulsa and kind of talked with him, and then I just kind of looked around, and Terry, I just found an article actually on her talking about how the PTSD work that she was doing. I emailed her, said, hey, have you heard of floating? I'd love for you to come out. She's actually at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Um, she came out, floated, and she came out of the float, as many of us have seen people come out of floats, just very, like, out of it, and just like, oh my gosh, what was that? Um, she had one of her um, assistants come in and do it, and then we started kind of talking from there. Justin had a friend at UW Madison, so we started talking with him. Eventually, we got through all this, and you know, fast forward two years later, I received the IRB protocol for review two days ago. So that's how long it took for this all to happen. So, it hasn't been approved yet or anything, comments, I send it back, she'll send it on to Justin hopefully in the next and a week or two and then they can submit it through their IRB and hopefully we'll be able to start actually doing some <coughs> research up there in a commercial center before the end of the year I would expect. So and she you know she's gonna be doing the informed consent. She's going to be monitoring the patients and so forth at the, the recreational center at the facility itself. And I did do the city I've already been city uh, certified so oh, I did yeah. that 
like as a requirement for me to be named in the study, I had to go through that, and so I read the reports, and the, yeah, and went, and it wasn't actually that bad. It was like four, four to eight hours, four hours maybe online sort of course thing. So I mean, yeah. that, that's a great story, you guys, and you know, anyone who's interested in doing true flow research in science, that's maybe the best strategy, is find a local university, a serious scientist who knows what they're doing, and let them do this in a collaborative fashion. And you know, one of the things that you know that requires is you have to be willing to give researchers cheap deals, oftentimes free deals, because <laughs> if you're gonna collect pilot data for a future grant, you don't have any money to collect that data. Maybe you'll get that grant and be able to start paying for your floats, but more likely than not, expect that you're gonna have to give floats for free to researchers who are really considering doing this as a viable uh, project. So that's one option. Another option, which Ricardo and Amrinder could tell us about, is this idea of a multi-site study at recreational flow centers, but using an IRB um, potentially for each center individually. Um, so maybe, Ricardo, do you want to tell us a little bit about sure. that? Um, so for us, it's, it's more complicated than surveys. So we do neuroscience research, brain research, and um, so we needed to also have a device, an electroencephalography device that is at the centers and records while people are floating before, after. So I have an entire protocol to be written around that and really structure the research about it. Um, for me, it's, it's different probably than most of you guys because I'm a researcher. That's what I did for 25 years. National Institute of Health, Salk Institute, and then actually got into this with, with Justin. Uh, with a common friend convincing me to go to deliver and kind of like what he's telling you guys to do and go check this thing out. And, and I'll tell you, it, it might be useful to notice, like you're gonna get some resistance in many cases, right? Because also, you know, for any researcher, the time is valuable, our resources are limited and we need to pick our battles, what we wanna do research on. So you guys need to be convincing on why, you know, we really wanna do this. And like Justin said, create the circumstances for them to be able to logistically, you know, work with you and be feasible to do this. Um, then for us, it's slightly different because I'm now, at, we created a company years ago in a private company, so we had a company spearheading this. So what we have is a full IRB uh, that allows for multi-centers, but each center per se needs to be added to the IRB. It gets reviewed by them, they recheck it, um, goes onto the general umbrella. And in this case, Neuroverse is, you know, so our company has a general central IRB, is not an IRB, you know, per float center. They just get amended as a new research site. So we support all the costs on the IRB and we do on the maintenance on that. Um, and then the way that we deal with it is from a center's perspective, as Justin was pointing out, this is a really important point, everything is de-identified. So we have no identifiable information of any kind. So we have demographics and then biological data, so behavioral and brain data. Everything gets you know, uploaded to our server that way. Um, and we did, you know, this was a really important study for us into mindfulness and different things that we're doing. So we had to put a lot of effort into it. But it's feasible, it's definitely feasible. The IRBs would approve it. Uh, I do think that comparatively to, you know, other kind of IRBs, floating is relatively safe or mostly safe. So I don't think you're gonna get a lot of backlash from that, we didn't. Um, having that said, once you start spearing into clinical populations, then things get trickier. Uh, if you're doing this with healthy subjects, which is mostly what we're doing, we do the clinical populations with Justin and with other centers, 
uh, with our academic research centers. Uh, and what we do on this protocol is just healthy researchers. We're really interesting to know how does the brain change and how we have these interceptive feelings, et cetera. What are the neural underpinnings of what's going on with you behaviorally? So that makes it easier. As soon as you get you know, PTSD, any other population, the IRB will, and it should, look at it more carefully. Um, the other thing, and I'm like Justin, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone or you know, email, whatever, and if I can be helpful, we can share some of the stuff that we're going to be doing with them. The other thing, and I'm not wanting to be too negative, but um, you know, the only thing worse than no research is crappy research. Um, and it really is, right? Because it creates artifacts, it creates noise, it creates all these misconceptions that then we need to wade through them and, you know, and spend the next five years cutting through that. Um, so it, it's not just about can you get certified? Can you get an IRB? Is the reason that I was saying yes, I think it's important to you know, partner with universities, with research centers, someone who really knows what you're doing is, you also don't want to be wasting your time. What would be the point for you to make an effort, do all these things, get some kind of IRB certification and the research is useful or crappy? I mean, it makes no sense. So really pick your researchers, pick your partners, make sure that whatever it is that you're doing is actually useful and is going to contribute to these things. From the models that Justin was talking about, I, I would just second that again, that the third one, where you have IRB exemption, yet it is possible, we use it for other kind of studies that are not uh, uh, float related. Um, it's, it's extremely hard to publish in a good journal with no IRB, okay? And the other thing is, like any novel kind of more out of the box kind of research, you will get pushback from the scientific community. You know, we all think that as scientists, we should be the most open-minded community. It's not. It's one of the most conservative communities you're ever going to find, especially if you're talking about any kind of medical processes, okay? So people will push back right away, reviewers, editors on these journals, like, what the hell is this, you know, float thing, and how is this going to work? So, so that's why, again, you know, I'm, I'm so proud and, and impressed of this work that Justin is doing, which getting these two papers published at the level of journals that he just did. We have another paper now submitting for publication. It is not an easy feat because you need to pass all these sort of guards. Yeah. And it's really important that you do that. The other thing with someone has mentioned, well, you know, from a business standpoint, which, you know, now having the company for five years, I get, which weren't worried about when I was at the NIH or, or the SALT, but is if you want to do something that is commercially appealing and you want to say, hey, you know, coming here and floating has all these advantages, you should come and do it. But then if I cannot say that, because I have an IRB and that's going to be conflicting, now that can be conflicting to my business. Well, I'm afraid I have some bad news. You're already on a dangerous territory anyway, okay? By just saying in any of your websites that you, know, you can cure X, Y, or Z or make it better, you can be slapped with an FTC fine and you can be put out of business like this. So I'll give you just a very quick you know, sort of antidote, but on our field of neuroplasticity and brain changes, and you guys probably have heard you know, in the last 15 years, 10 years mostly, a lot of all these companies and things about, oh, you do these brain games, and are gonna change your brain and get your attention better, and this and that. It's not true in specific games and specific circumstances. The problem is that we got a huge boom of companies doing these cognitive training games, and a lot of them doing it with no kind of evidence whatsoever of the stuff they were putting out. A uh, really famous case was one of these guys from Lumosity who sold whatever million. They got shut down with a $7.5 million fine because on their website they would say, oh, you know, we can, you know, change your brain and help curing this and curing that by playing our games. And, you know, the FTC went to them and said, okay, show me the evidence. Where are the papers? Where are the publications? Where is the research? 
tight, not in general you can do this, but the games that you're selling. And they didn't have it. So think about it in that way. I mean, it's, it's, we all, you know, floating, we know the advantages, we personally in a subjective way. But as Justin has been pointing out, we do not have a solid bolt of empirical evidence. On the more positive side, and I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, but since we're here, it's, I do really think that this medical aspect, now talking about from a more business perspective, can really make a huge, huge difference in your business. Because everyone that I've talked to in the last three years that we've been working together and talking to a lot of you guys and heading flood centers to our research, is the repetitive customer that becomes a problem. People come in, do the novelty effect, it's great, but then they don't come back. This kind of medical approach can really open a whole other aspect of repetitive business. But you need to do it right. You need to help us with this, and you need to have the patient and do it you know, in the right way. Because again, it only takes a few crappy studies and a ton of bad publicity, and it'll push the whole thing back another 15 years. Because then every doctor, every MD is gonna be like, oh yeah, I heard about that. It was that crappy thing they were doing, not you know, IRB approved, bad research. I'm not gonna even come close to that thing. So I think this can be a really, really positive thing that I think even business-wise can be a really good alternative and a really good complement for what you guys are trying to do. But, you know, it, it needs to grow in that sense. And I, I think if enough work gets done, insurance companies will start supplying help, which is a huge thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be, be a major shift for the industry because the way I've been speaking, actually, two insurance companies in Tulsa, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and some national companies as well. And they're very excited, I can tell you, about the potential of reimbursing for floating. In fact, they told me, if you could even take a little bit of the edge off of chronic pain conditions and some of this opioid crisis that they're facing, they would buy people their own personal float tanks. <laughs> because that's how much it's costing them as a healthcare industry. But they said, the million dollar question, show me the evidence. So I could say, this is the study that supports me reimbursing this. So that's the key, you guys. If you're going to get insurance to reimburse for floating, we have to publish the papers. So as we go, say like if we're a starting up center, interested in this idea, um, there's obviously a lot of anecdotal evidence. Mm -hmm. And you know you see it on all the brochures, like good for PTSD, certain things, would the best way to go about that just be through people's personal stories? You could, yeah, I think that it's a better thing to say, here's some of our customers' feedback than saying this is going to help X, Y, or Z. But honestly, sorry, that clinical website, did you see that website with all the published papers? Mm -hmm. That would be because you could quote all of them. That's right, and you could, you could send them to that website too, and they could actually see the peer-reviewed science behind it. So, since we're on the subject, do we really want the insurance companies involved? <laughs> <laughs> well, given the fact that we can't even figure out what the hell our medical insurance model is, it keeps rubber banding back and forth depending on the administration, so it's hard to say. But I can tell you this, I know a lot of float center owners who do great on the weekends, and weekdays are a major struggle. And I can tell you, every weekday slot would be filled if insurance was reimbursing. So I, I, I'm not averse to insurance reimbursing, and most of the most vulnerable people who have health conditions need insurance to afford floating. So I own a physical therapy business, and inside that I have floating therapy. 
And so I have the headache of day in, day out of people that won't come to my physical therapy clinic because we don't take their insurance. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not a big conglomerate, in, I've had insurance companies tell me, you don't have enough <laughs> providers, on, you're not in network with us. Mm -hmm. And then also the other thing it does is you have to charge X amount, right. and your reimbursable amount is a lot more of a cash option. That so is it's a tricky field once we get going forward is. on do we want insurance or not, but you can opt out and be a cash only business. You always can do that, but yeah, keep in mind, you guys, the trajectory of this, in terms of your own internal time frame, it's going to take five to ten years minimum to get insurance companies fully on board with this, and that's assuming the clinical trials are done, published in good journals, and the results bear out what we're thinking. And that's a lot of assumptions even there. But it, you know, we're still five, ten years away. From that. Yeah. Well, as a nurse, I mean, we traditionally, I mean, everything from what I've read. Is that it equates the equivalent almost with the brain EEG, you know, reading the brain waves is meditation. So we have scientific data about meditation. Why don't we just make that equivalent, like find that correlation and say meditation equals floating, floating equals meditation? Because it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. No. Yeah. We're actually researching meditation and mindfulness as well. The assistant talks tomorrow, we're going to be talking about. Financial Mackay is going to be here tomorrow with Deepak Chopra's right hand guy who works together on meditation mindfulness stuff. It's not the same thing. There's definitely a lot of overlaps, but it's not the same thing. In the different environment, the brain is working differently. Um, and that's part of what we're trying to get at. Okay. So you could definitely you know, push some of the indications, but you can't say, oh, these two things are equivalent. So let's go for that. Okay. Yeah, the, the other aspect too is that uh, Apple rest or floating is not only eliciting the relaxation response, it's eliciting other responses such as the shamanistic states of consciousness, which sometimes are similar to taking psychedelic drugs, but with FLRS, it's, it's happening in a safe and controlled manner, so we, we can't depend on the, the 40 or so years of uh, relaxation response data, as for example, the data that uh, Benson and others have accumulated. So um, I want to let Amrinder tell you a little bit about his story. Amrinder is getting his, his PhD in clinical psych, right? No, um, he's getting my PhD in behavior analysis and therapy. Okay. Um, quite close to the Yeah, quite close. Oh, man, I don't like um, Okay. So, yeah, my name is Amrinder Babra. Um, I'm getting my PhD in behavior analysis and therapy at Southern Illinois University. Um, I started floating last year for the first time, and it happened by chance at, uh, Dr. Ho Louder? Uh, at Dr. Howard Weissman's place. Um, I know he's been a speaker for the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, since my first float, I had a very profound experience and I wanted to know what was happening. Um, so I decided to start my own research institute. Um, I named it the International Behavioral Research Institute. Um, I have, because my team is located in Canada and, you know, in Texas, so I have individuals, um, you know, in Canada and in the U.S. Um, and my current study is looking at um, utilizing acceptance and commitment therapy and float rest together um, because ACT 
is an empirically validated um, mindfulness-based psychological intervention. And it has shown to have a very strong psychosocial, a very strong effect with the psychosocial component, but a minimal to almost no effect with the physiological component. Whereas floating with the limited research does show a phenomenal um, physiological effect. So I'm looking to combine the two therapies together to look at burnout syndrome, chronic pain, PTSD, um, alcohol and drug recovery, and just, you know, wherever else it may take me. Um, getting IRB approval was tough. Um, I was, because I'm a doc student, I was able to pair my university's IRB with my nonprofit. And um, it took six months to do that, so it's, it's not easy. It's been tough, but we currently have, I think, 15 float centers under, uh, under my IRB proposal, 10 in Chicago, four in Florida, and one in Washington. Um, and someone messaged me from London this morning asking if they could be part of the, the proposal. I don't know what the Are you doing e-consents? Uh, yeah, I'm doing e-consents. Um, yeah, and then, like I said, I was, uh, uh, what's the, uh, what's the word? Not conducting, um, promoting or yeah, promote uh, through social media. Um, and IRB is very, you know, they're sticklers about that. Um, everything that you intend to do, you have to write it in the IRB proposal because if you deviate from it slightly, they're gonna essentially shut your study, yeah, shut your study down, and uh, you won't be able to use the data. So. Um, you know, as Justin Ricardo said, you have to be very, very careful about that. And, uh, yeah. That's exciting, Amanda. So in this case, people just go into your website, sign up there, do some kind of e-doc signing consent, and do everything through the website, um, does whatever services. So I was given a number of options. Um, I did that, and what I also did was, um, because I was recruiting, I was allowed to just you know, use my company email, say, hey, you reach out to this email, and then if you're interested, we can go over the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, which if you are doing clinical trials, that is really, really important now. Um, I didn't know about that. Luckily, I reached out to Dr. Feinstein, and he made, you know, made me aware of that before I got going, um, because, you know, some of my professors didn't know that, so. Thank well, you. it keeps changing, right? Yeah, clinical yeah. Clinical trials is changing a lot. Um, so it's exciting, um, it's kind of cool, and then, you know, when I'm done with my PhD in two years, I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do in terms of, you know, the IRB board, but um, that's the plan. Cool. Congrats. Thank you. Awesome. So, just to give you a sense of what Amrinder's talking about, if you're going to do a clinical trial and get it published in a journal, you sure as hell better put it on clinicaltrials.gov. And you gotta put it on before you start the trial. One of the things that they recognize pretty quickly is something called, uh, uh, essentially, uh, the file drawer problem. Where people would do these large clinical trials and if they found a significant effect, they would publish it. And if they didn't find the significant effect, they put it in a file drawer and no one would ever hear about it again. And if you measure enough variables, just by virtue of chance, something's going to be significant, right? 
So if you measure 100 variables and you use a p less than 0.05, five of those variables are just going to be significant purely as a false alarm, right? But what people would do is they'd publish whole papers about those five significant variables, and then someone would go to replicate the clinical trial, and guess what? It didn't replicate. And so this is the NIH's solution. Before you start the trial, you submit your trial online. Patients who want to join the trial could actually see that, so it's a recruitment tool. But then on top of it, journal editors could look back and see what was your study design, what was your inclusion-exclusion criteria, and most importantly, what is your primary outcome variable? If you could just choose one thing that this study is going to show a change, then what is that one variable? So for me, you know, I study people who have anxiety, so I would measure their anxiety levels. That would be my primary outcome variable. Ricardo measures EEG, so that would probably be his primary outcome variable, right? But you have to pre-specify. And then, if you find a significant effect on that one pre-specified variable, you could publish. And if you don't find an effect, you still could publish it, but it's not gonna be in as good of a journal. But the idea is you pre-specify everything. And so you can see there's actually, uh, what is that, six? Six studies going on around the world that are float-related clinical trials. Uh, this first one is um, a study my colleague Saib Kals is doing at my institute in inpatients who have anorexia nervosa. These are very, very ill, uh, mostly young women. Uh, the second study is done by uh, Florian Weissner in Hanover, Germany. He's going to be looking at chronic pain. He's going to be doing functional neuroimaging, and he's going to be looking at a lot of different pain indices. Uh, the third study is on renders. And you can see enrolling by invitation, and he's looking at burnout syndrome using a combination of ACT, floating, or both of them together. Um, this is my study on anxiety disorders. Um, this is my old study, or actually Saib's old study um, on eating disorders. And then this is actually um, a second study uh, that we did um, using fMRI. And this is one of the things that pissed me off, is it wasn't a clinical trial, but because of the new clinical trial definition, suddenly it became one, so I still had to put this into clinical trials back up. So anyways, this is, this is something you could all do, and I get emails every day of the week from patients around the world, I want to be in your study, and I say, well, could you come to Tulsa, Oklahoma? <laughs> That's usually the end of our email conference. <laughs> And that is part one of Justin's Friday talk at the Float Conference, talking about the Float Research Collective. We're really excited about this concept. We want it to take off. Uh, there's uh, another episode next week. There's another episode next week where he's going to do a QA. There's a lot of really good questions about how to get this off the ground, potential problems. All of that stuff is discussed. Another really good episode I'm excited to share with the Float community. Hope to see you there. Before we go, I want to thank Floataway for supporting the show. Floataway just came out with the Float Rescue Board. They presented that at the Float Conference. If you stop by their booth, basically it's a board that you can put somebody on to help get them out of a float tank in case of an emergency. Uh, something that I think every single float center should simply have by definition. Floataway.com is where you want to go to check out the Float Rescue Board, as well as all the float tanks that they uh, manufacture as well.
I also want to thank you for listening to the show. Thank you so much for supporting us simply by listening to us. I also want to thank people supporting us on Patreon. Thank you ever so much. It means a lot to us. It means it makes it easier for us to show up every week and bring you great float content. I also want to thank Kim Hannon for writing our show notes each and every week. And uh, remember, everybody, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing. So spend some time there. We'll see you next week. You're listening to Art of the Float.